electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford. Deirdre Bose is off today. Uber revving up guidance while turning cash flow positive for the first time. Shares enjoying their best day in a couple of years, even with the big loss. Much more on what its results mean for investors ahead of Lyft and Airbnb later this week. Pins is a story today, piquing the interest of Elliott. Stocks up double digits despite growing concerns over ad spend. Is Elliott's investment a reason for you to buy as well? We will discuss. And then we'll look at some opportunities across all of tech. The CEOs of OnSemi, Zoom Info, and Global Payments with it this hour. And we're going to monitor the situation in Taipei after Speaker Pelosi lands in Taiwan a few moments ago. We'll get to all of that in a moment. But first, some breaking economic data to get to. And for that, we'll turn to Steve Leisman. Hey, Steve. Hey, good morning, Carl. Yeah, the New York Fed's household debt and credit survey showing that inflation is pushing up household debt. This stands to reason as prices rise, the thing that you want to borrow for, that goes up in price as well. So you have to stretch and increase the size of the debt. Household debt rising by $312 billion to $16.1 trillion. The 8% increase is one of the bigger ones we've seen. Last quarter was also in the 8% range, the biggest ones we've seen since the 2007-2008 crisis. Driving this debt was credit card debt increasing by 13%. That is the most in 20 years. Seems like uh, consumers are out there increasing the balances on their credit cards. Probably a bad idea if you want my personal advice. They're considering the high rates they're probably paying. Now, delinquencies. This is what's watched to see what is the level of consumer credit stress out there. They remain low, but we are seeing an increase in this report for uh, uh, delinquencies at the lowest, among the lowest income levels, those with the lowest uh, credit scores. We are seeing some increase. So, John, something to watch, not necessarily anywhere near alarm or recession levels, but we are watching this. We would expect, as the economy softens, some normalization of what had been very low delinquency rates and also some stretching by consumers for uh, uh, for bigger loans to pay for things that cost more. John? Steve, thanks. Important data making this economic picture a little bit clearer. Steve Leisman. Now let's get back to Uber. That stock is up, boy, about 15% after reporting better than anticipated revenue for the second quarter. Uh, the number is driven primarily by recovery in the mobility business. That's ride sharing, which was up 57% year over year. And big headline, Uber says it's now cash flow positive, even if it is still reporting a significant net loss. CEO Dara Khosrowshahi joined Squawk on the street earlier this morning on how the current macro environment is hitting their business. Take a listen. We're looking to see if inflation is having any kind of effect on the business. Are our food customers trading down? Are they eating cheaper kind of food? Zero evidence of that. We're watching it very closely. The most uh, obvious effect of inflation seems to be to get more drivers onto the platform at this at this point for us. Guidance for Q3 also coming in above estimates. Carl, um, some really interesting reaction to earnings. I mean, Uber, of course, which we're talking about now, but also Pinterest. Uh, you know, Pinterest 
miss, miss, guidance was a miss, and, and it pops. Um, some, some optimism, but here for, for Uber, a pretty clear reason for that move. Uh, yeah, I mean, you got uh, mobility up uh, 50 plus percent uh, ex currency. And then, John, as you talked about, a pretty good uh, base of drivers and couriers. In fact, an all time high. They're making it easier to onboard. And then starting to talk about longer term objectives like investment grade, uh, like shareholder returns, uh, signs that uh, the turnaround we've talked about with Uber for a couple of years now appears to be in place. Yeah, I wonder if the kind of darkening financial economic picture is driving more people to get a little extra income and to go out and drive for Uber, right? Because the story a few months ago was, boy, driver shortage, it, without the incentives, how are we going to get drivers on the road? You know, now maybe, maybe this slowing economy is actually not so bad for uh, Uber getting additional drivers on the, on the road. Maybe that's a metric that we can watch, Carl, as we continue to see how this slowing economy plays out. Yeah. Uh, and then talking a bit about uh, ways to negotiate perhaps some kind of business model where you do pay drivers some semblance of benefits without having to run afoul of, uh, of laws and, uh, and make it either black or white in states like California. Uh, that's a longer term story, but fascinating results. Best day since 2020. Let's turn to Pinterest. The stock is uh, surging despite f- poor financial results. Elliott, as we said, revealing it's now the top shareholder uh, for more on the quarter and Elliott's in investment. Let's bring in our Julia Borston. Hi, Julia. Hey, Carl, Twitter missing on the top and bottom line. But after the grim outlooks of Meta, Snap and Twitter, Pinterest wasn't as bad as many had feared. And the stock soared on the news that activist Elliott is now the company's largest shareholder, shining a spotlight on Pinterest positioning to tap into e-commerce demand and to use information about what people are searching for to target ads and measure those ads impact, not as constrained by Apple's operating system changes as Pinterest peers. Elliot saying, quote, Pinterest occupies a unique position in the advertising and shopping ecosystems, and CEO Bill Reddy is the right leader to oversee Pinterest's next phase of growth. Baird writing that Pinterest Q2 results and Q3 guidance support the idea that Pinterest occupies a unique position between search and social, facing revenue headwinds not quite as severe as Meta Snap Twitter, but perhaps not quite as resilient as Google Search. And Susquehanna upgrading pins saying, quote, while the fundamentals are still a bit choppy and there remains a lot of work ahead, we believe the new CEO and activist oversight combined with doable bogeys and an undemanding valuation have skewed the risk reward to the upside. So, of course, there's also the speculation that new CEO Bill Reddy's ties to PayPal could potentially line those two companies up for a deal. But I think what's most important here is this is a company that is pivoting to focus on e-commerce. Julia, that's, well, what I wonder about the reaction to this quarter is, is this about the fundamentals and the prospects that Twitter, uh, sorry, that Pinterest could grow into something significant beyond what it is right now? Or is it about the fact that, boy, the business looks fundamentally pretty healthy and it looks positioned in a way that some kind of transaction could happen. Somebody could buy. The chances of that look higher now than they did a couple days ago. Well, I would say it's less that the fundamentals of the business look healthy because there are still all these challenges, but there was this great growth opportunity. I mean, Pinterest laid out some stats in its earnings last night about how their shopping ads, the ads that are specifically trying to convert consumers to make purchases, those are performing really well. And a lot of analysts that are watching this stock have thought, 
gee, why didn't Pinterest do this sooner? Why didn't Pinterest rush into e-commerce? Hey, two years ago, two years ago, its user base was growing dramatically, um, but it didn't sort of complete that transition into the e-commerce space. So I think that the success with e-commerce that Pinterest could have both makes it a more valuable company as a standalone, but also would make it a more valuable acquisition target. Julia, thanks. Uh, despite the boost for Uber and Pinterest, stocks are broadly lower today. Uh, Dow's uh, down 204, although the S&P went green briefly. On pace for a second negative day to kick off the week. NASDAQ still in the green. Joining us to discuss uh, Wells Fargo Chairman of Global Internet Investment Banking, Bob Peck. Bob, it's great to have you. Welcome back to Post 9. Yeah, thanks again for having me. I know we talk every quarter, but it's my first time back since pre the pandemic. I think the last time we spoke live was literally two weeks before they shut everything down. Oh so it's great to be back. It puts a, puts a coda to this yeah. thing we've been through. Yeah. I know you can't talk about individual companies per se, yeah. but we're discussing one name right there yeah. um, and, and sort of spinning out theories about deal activity. Is the field ripe right now for yeah. deals? Yeah, so a couple of things there. One, just level setting. You know, obviously, the S&P is down 13%, give or take. NASDAQ down 21%, give or take. And the heavy-weighted tech emphasis on the S&P, which is about 25% of it, is weighing down the S&P with the other stocks only down about 10%. Interestingly, since before the COVID, we're actually up 25% or so. So interesting just data point there. As we think about where we are now. Let's take a look at what we've learned from earnings so far. So with earnings so far, over half have reported, right? Of that, 70% have beaten revenues. That's great, right? 75% have beaten earnings. So that's great as well. Now, interestingly, for those that give guidance, though, this is the interesting sort of subtlety there. For those that give guidance looking forward at 3Q and the rest of the year, about 60% of that has been negative, right? Taking things down. A little cautionary tale as there's more risk, uncertainty, inflation, interest rates, War, Pelosi, all the things you can talk about, right? Just weighing on some of that uncertainty there. So I think that's a big part of where we are right now. And the investor mindset as we look at the rest of 2022, looking into 23. Well, of, this, of the S&P sectors, the one sector where Q3 numbers have been cut the most is in comm services. Yes. So it sounds like you are, you're cautious. Yeah, well, energy and utilities, it's been up, right. as you know. Right. So it's great seeing the counterbalances there. You asked the question on M&A, and I think this is really interesting. You know, last year we're coming up to all-time high, right? $6 trillion in global deals for M&A. This year, year to date, we're off about 20%, right? But if you straight line that through the end of the year, you would still be in the second best year for M&A, for global M&A in history, right? So I think what's really interesting when you think about that for a second, you had the peak in November, right, of all the tech names, right? And what happened in Q1 and into Q2 was a lot of the money that was on the sidelines, private equity is $900 billion, dry powder, S&P 500 is over $3.7 trillion in dry powder. I think what you saw was some of the disconnects in valuations and multiples. And what we've been hearing through our sponsors, our private equity contacts, is now these companies are starting to come to the table and realizing that maybe that, that watermark in November isn't the real multiple you should be at, right? Maybe it's something lower. You're seeing multiples today for, the, for today for the large tech names, somewhere around five and a half times revenues. That's down from a year ago, around eight times revenues, and more in line with what you've seen over the five-year average. So it's interesting to see these multiples come down, and now people are starting to talk more about opportunities. Bob, what are we learning this earnings season in Internet about whose model is working better than others? Yeah. It seems like auction-based ad models not performing as well, things that are more closely tied to transactions, stable, loyal membership, you know, as far as subscribers go, doing yeah. a bit better. 
Yeah, it's a great question on the advertising side. And it always comes down to this, particularly when there's just questions about the future. It all comes down to the advertiser's ROAS, you know, the return on their advertising spend. And the more tangible, the more immediate they can see that, more of the shift their spend will go to that versus say something like brand advertising, which is less tangible in the near term. So I think you're seeing a lot more focus by advertisers just on the near term here, particularly as we look about the question marks and uncertainty heading into the back half of the year. But John, you hit on an important part there. The more we see these recurring revenues, subscription type revenues, SaaS type revenues, the more you can see that there's less risk, there's more dependability there, and those tend to get higher multiple. So I think given the questions we have going to the back half of the year, you're to see a premium for those recurring type revenues. And are we seeing a, a separation, Bob, maybe even a bifurcation in um, who, based on who the audience is for internet companies, whether it's the middle class and higher or the middle class and lower as far as audience. Yeah. That group that's getting squeezed so much by inflation, you gotta buy food, right? You gotta pay rent. Uh, you, you've got to buy gas. How much do you have left over for discretionary purchases after that? If you're dealing with the higher income demographic, maybe not as squeezed, but what if you're dealing with the middle class right now? It's a really good point. And right before we went on, we also saw the credit card data ticking up, right? So there's a big question about particularly that bottom 20, 30%. How tapped out are they? Um, what are they doing to augment their revenue? Because the things like uh, gasoline prices being high really is a true tax on them. Um, you know, before we jumped on, someone was mentioning about possibly having more Uber driving happening as they try to augment their income. But I think you raise a really good point. And one of the things we're hearing a lot from investors is to focus on that you know, bottom 20, 30 percent. How are they increasing their own income to be able to account for these higher prices? Finally, Bob, I'll throw out the question that we, we give to a lot of people, and that is, are you sensing better momentum in tech enterprise or tech consumer? Are, yeah. or is it, are the two worlds thought about differently right now? Well, the two worlds are thought about differently. On the enterprise side, you know, where you have stable contracts, low-term recurring revenues, um, good bookings or backlog that you can look into can give investors a lot of solace, right? On the consumer side of things, I think you're seeing investors look at different trends they can play, whether it be a resurgence in travel, whether it be catering towards that higher-end consumer. Right. So you're really, the investors we're talking to are really looking almost on a name-by-name -name basis, looking at the opportunities in front of them, both particularly in the short term, but then ultimately for the longer term. Are there some good longer term buys here to establish positions in now while multiples have contracted? Right. Exactly. Right? Uh, good, good insight as always, and nice yeah. to have you in person. It's great to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having yeah. me. Bob Peck. John. Still to come this hour, the CEOs of OnSemi and ZoomInfo on earnings, plus the chief executive of Global Payments. Tech Check is just getting started. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? 
At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Going to go check on Activision today, uh, lower to flat, uh, post earnings uh, a beat on revenue. This is a stock that trades now in the context of Microsoft's pending acquisition. That was for $95 a share. ATVI today currently a shade uh, below 80. Some investors still skeptical, John. Deal gets done at all, given some of the lingering regulatory worries that are circling all around the world. Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal with one of the big companies, but if uh, anybody's going to get green lighted, some argue it's Microsoft of the mega caps anyway. Uh, another name that just reported earnings, chip supplier on semi, posting a beat across the board with record revenue margins and earnings guidance coming in above the consensus as well. For more on the quarter, let's bring in CEO Hassan El-Khuri. Hassan, welcome. Um, interesting market reaction to this. I mean, maybe they're just looking at the gross margins, but I guess the, the underlying question for me is, how clear is the demand picture for you given the, the slowing economy? Look, overall, we split the demand into uh, core and not core. Let me focus on, on the core business. That's where most of the clarity is in the long term, which is automotive and industrial. The strength in that business, the demand that we're seeing, and our ability to supply remain constrained. Uh, that demand is not uh, slowing down. We're making progress and catching up, but the outlook looks very favorable. And then you tie on top of that our long-term agreements that we disclosed in uh, yesterday's call as far as silicon carbide, which is going to fuel the EV evolution or the EV revolution for the next uh, decade or two. On the non-core, of course, we're seeing the same what uh, a lot of our peers that are more exposed to uh, uh, the consumer and compute uh, environment. Uh, we see the same, but those are non-core for us. And we've been kind of stepping back from that business from the last two years since we started our transformation. Uh, and we're taking our manufacturing, a very cautious approach when it comes to the market, but we're still doubling down on the auto and industrial segments. Okay, so given that, what are you doing with costs like headcount and, and what's your approach to your debt? Look, we, we're very comfortable where our debt is. Uh, we're under one from a debt to EBITDA uh, where we stand, so we're comfortable with the debt where uh, the debt is. But from an OPEX, we're running below our model. Uh, we've been trying to catch up to the model. You know, you never hear a lot of CFOs saying that we'd like to get up to the model. Uh, and you heard me on the call yesterday actually actually uh, throw it out there saying we're hiring. Uh, we're still hiring. We're very cautious where we are. We have a lot of strategic uh, positions that we're hiring in, and we're not going to slow that down. And we're not slowing our investments in uh, CapEx that are yielding that capacity that we need in auto and industrial for the next decade uh, when it comes to silicon carbide specifically. I think that's interesting because we're awash in headlines and leaked memos about companies that are being disciplined, but no one ever talks about the fact that other companies are disciplined in maintaining their hiring or their retention or their CapEx plants. Yeah, look, if you, if you look at the transformation we've done and the restructuring we've done throughout 21 when things are good, that's when companies need to establish themselves for what is yet to come, which is potentially the not so good times. So we have a very strong baseline. We have a solid strategy that we've been executing to. That strategy has shown the results and the outlook of that strategy is stronger than where we are today. So I have no reason uh, to pull back on our investments and no reason to pull back on the hiring. 
because we've done that, we've set ourselves up for this moment. So whenever we come out of whatever you want to call it, this, this slowdown or this uncertainty, we're going to come out stronger than what we walked in. And that's always been part of our core strategy. Your core area, automotive and industrial, I find so interesting because I'm hearing about it also from Qualcomm, from Marvell, uh, as an area of some pretty rapid transformation, in, including the layering in of 5G increase in efficiency. In terms of years, how long do you see that, uh, that transition taking place? And, uh, and how long do you see having key IP that gives you an advantage there? Look, I think... When, when we talk about our, our IP, there's a lot of investments that we are doing, and our roadmap today is what we are winning on. Uh, you know, I've always talked about competitive advantage when it comes to IP specifically, and for us on the power side, the IP is not just on the semiconductor itself or the device. The IP is also on the uh, packaging, but also the end-to-end -end manufacturing that we at OnSemi are able to provide to our customers from a supply assurance perspective. That is all part of our competitive advantage mode that we are uh, providing. And that's come out and paid dividend this year through a lot of the constraints where we've been able to push the boundary of manufacturing and extend the supply that we need for our customers. You've seen us grow consistently throughout the last few years. We've just reported our uh, record quarter where we crossed the 2 billion mark per quarter. That is exactly what we call IP and our know-how and it just starts with the technology, but it extends beyond it to everything we do. In industrial particularly, what's driving investment in your technology? Is it efficiency or is it new revenue potential for your customers? Uh, so it's both. So we have, obviously, we have the efficiency, which is our, the cornerstone of our technology when you talk about power. But you also have the expansion of the customer base that really was fueled by coming out of the, uh, the COVID shutdown. A lot of manufacturing uh, could not run 100% or all shifts. So automation and the investments by our customer to push the automation boundary or accelerate their automation has provided an upside opportunity for us, for our new products that are actually enabling those customers to achieve their automation and the efficiency they look. Look, when, when you have a... Uh, a camera that we provide to manufacturing for the optical inspection that increases throughput without increasing the headcount that needs to be at the factory during shutdown, that is a win-win. We provide that, the customer need that, and that's the increase that we're seeing in some of our sensing, and the same applies to power. Definitely a win in this labor-constrained environment, at least on paper. Hassan El-Khoury, CEO of OnSemi. Thank you. Thank you. Meanwhile, Zoom info surging on results. Is it time to add back some exposure to some of those high growth names? We'll discuss that with the CEO when he joins us next. Don't go away. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. I'm Seema Modi with a news update. Within the last hour, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi landed in Taiwan with a congressional delegation. In a written statement issued as she touched down, she says the visit, quote, honors America's unwavering commitment to supporting Taiwan's vibrant democracy. China's embassy in the U.S. calling it a serious violation of the One China principle. In a statement today, the foreign ministers of the G7 industrialized nations say they are looking at ways to prevent Russia from profiting from its invasion of Ukraine. One option, it may move to block the global transportation of Russian oil unless it is bought at a price at or below a designated price. And Tiger Woods turning down a lot of money to play in the Saudi-backed Live Golf League. In an appearance on Fox News, Live CEO Greg Norman indicated Woods would have received something in the neighborhood of $1 billion. Woods has criticized Live's guaranteed payments to players, saying they remove any incentive to, in his words, earn it in the dirt. John, back to you. Earn it in the dirt. <laughs> I like that. See you, Moni. Thank you. Let's turn to software. Zoom Info surging on the heels of Q2 earnings raising their guidance for the year after beating on the top and bottom, appearing to earn in the dirt. Joining us now in an exclusive interview, ZoomInfo founder and CEO, Henry Schacht. Henry, welcome. Uh, I'm trying to understand how the difference between sales and marketing plays out in your numbers. We're seeing some ad budgets cut, which people might think, oh, well, maybe less investment in B2B data, but you still need to make sales, you still need efficiency. How's that playing out and how you see your customers behaving? Yeah, you sure do. And thank you for having me, John. And I think what the, the difference here is when we look across our customer base, uh, what we see is companies who are saying, hey, we're going to reprioritize our spend. We might reprioritize it from GNA. We might reprioritize it from brand marketing. But the thing we're not going to touch we're not going to touch sales resources. We're not going to touch our go-to-market motion. We're not going to touch things that drive demand and help our sellers close demand. And that's the place that we operate. I think that's why we beat top and bottom line this quarter. We put up a rule of 94 company. We're doing that profitably, growing the top line 54% and doing with operating margins of 40%. Because in an economy like this, the thing that our customers want to do is get the most out of the resources that they have on the ground. And they can do that by investing in data and software and insights like the, like the data and software and insights that we provide at Zoom Info. So in that context, talk about what you call advanced functionality uh, within your product suite and uh, sort of what that means for the stickiness uh, of your product, uh, customer utilization of your product, um, and maybe net revenue retention. Yeah, absolutely. So advanced uh, functionality is essentially more advanced and sophisticated ways to use our software platform and use our data and insights. So for example, I may want to automate the tasks that a sales representative does. 
Every day a salesperson comes in, they try to find the companies who are in market for their products and services. They want to call the key buyers or email the key buyers or do uh, sort of demand generation functions in front of those buyers. Instead of doing those in a one-off way, we built automated software that allows a rep to build their ideal customer profile and then get in front of them in an automated way every single day. That's advanced functionality that takes one salesperson and makes them feel like three or four salespeople. And so getting our customers to leverage that advanced functionality increases the efficiency of their sales teams, drives better outcomes for their companies. And it's the area that we're investing in and driving for our customers is they use that advanced functionality. Obviously, they renew more. We see customers who use this advanced functionality renewing and adding more and more seats, more functionality. They're our best net retention customers. Hey, speaking of retention and renewing, Henry, uh, some of the street did note that you guys said you'd seen extra layers of approval uh, required on certain large deals, but they just said you, said you said the same thing in Q1 and things didn't meaningfully erode. What do you think that's about? Yeah, look, I think what's happening today uh, is companies are reprioritizing their spend. And so what we're seeing, especially in larger deals and international deals, is that companies are saying, look, before we approve the spend, before we continue this investment, we want it to go through an extra layer of scrutiny. We want a chief financial officer to sign off on it. We have a more extensive procurement process that we want to go through. Those deals are still closing. They're just taking longer to close. And so one of the things that we saw was there are a number of deals that, that slipped out of Q2 that already came in uh, in Q3, both on the new business and the retention side. And so we're still seeing those deals get to fruition. They're just elongating because there are multiple layers of additional uh, approval that, that they have to go through. But especially for us, what we feel really insulated by is the fact that this is go-to-market software. It's go-to-market data. It drives the efficiencies of your sales teams. It drives the efficiency of your marketing resources. And when companies are looking at places to cut spending, this is just not one that they're excited about cutting back on. They may make those changes elsewhere. And I think that's why we're seeing these deals still come to fruition. Let's talk about M&A. Are you shopping? There are a lot of startups <laughs> with, with technology in whether it's sales automation or uh, you know, tr trying to get that process more efficient. Um, are, are they in a more affordable place than they were in the past? Is there anything there that you think would accelerate your growth? Yeah, so we've done 15 acquisitions since uh, since we founded the company. M&A is a key part of our strategic toolkit. Uh, we think we're pretty good at acquiring a company, bringing it into the Zoom Info fold, and then increasing its velocity. In our announcements, we talked about a company called Chorus that we acquired last year. It's now three to almost three times the size as when we acquired it less than a year ago. We acquired a company called Ringlead that is data orchestration software that has already doubled revenue in the last nine months. So we're always looking for opportunities from an M&A perspective. Uh, we do think valuations got a little bit out of hand uh, uh, if you kind of rewind the clock nine months ago, and it's starting to come back to a more normalized state. Um, we know what we want to build in the platform. We're looking to build an end-to-end go-to-market platform for sales and marketing teams. So we're still looking at opportunities from an M&A perspective. Uh, I think you'll see us continue to look at those and be opportunistic where there's real value. All right. Uh, Zoom info, zooming a bit higher, more than 9.5% after earnings. Henry, thank you, the CEO. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Still to come, a conversation with San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly. Tech Check returns in a moment.
Welcome back. About an hour ago, I spoke with San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly in a Fort Knox one-on-one interview. Stocks popped last week after the Fed raised interest rates 75 basis points. And Daly says the Federal Reserve is completely united in bringing down inflation. The numbers are far too high. The work is nowhere near almost done. I asked her because some in the market seem to feel that the commentary after this meant that the Fed was almost done. Here's her reaction. Nowhere near almost done. We have made good start, and I feel really pleased with where we've gotten to by this point. But let's just remember the last numbers on inflation, 9.1%. Those are far too high. But most importantly, just go to any grocery store. You know, I went to do a lot of shopping for different things in over the weekend, and people are still struggling with the high prices they're paying and the rising prices. You know, the number of people who can't afford this week what they paid for with ease six months ago just means our work is far from done. So we are still resolute and completely united on achieving uh, price stability, which doesn't mean 9.1% inflation. It means something closer to 2% inflation. I was kind of surprised to see uh, you know, the bond market, some folks betting that you guys are actually going to be cutting next year. <laughs> <laughs> That's mean, a puzzle to me. I, I don't know where they, they find that that in the data. I mean, for me, that would not be my modal outlook. My modal outlook or the outlook I think is most likely is really that we, we raise interest rates and then we hold them there for a while at whatever level we think is appropriate for accomplishing this dual mandate, as you said, the, the full employment price stability. That is where my outlook is. You know, if we had an unforeseen negative shock on the economy that we needed to lower interest rates for, we could absolutely do it, but not as optimal policy, not as the policy we go in and think, oh, we're going to ratchet interest rates up really fast and then cut them. That is terribly hard on the economy. It's really hard on people because imagine you, you're you trying to figure out, am I buying a car? Am I buying a house? Am I getting a loan for a remodel? And you don't know what interest rates are doing because you think the Fed is going to raise them quickly and then lower them. That is uh, why we don't typically do that. We typically smooth out the path, but it's also really important to continue to fight back on this inflation that we've seen. And doing that requires you know, raising and, and leaving the interest rate for a while. Let's bring in our senior economics reporter, Steve Leesman. Steve, uh, you know, President Daly, pretty clear how she feels about the idea of cutting next year. Yeah, this is interesting, important, and I think somewhat expected, John. And I, I think you really nailed the, uh, the tail of the tape here. Uh, the Fed came out with a, uh, a statement, and it was just last week. It feels like it was a month ago now. So much has gone down since that meeting. But, and the market took it as some kind of pivot, as some kind of confirmation that this idea of rate cuts in the second half uh, were, were, were baked in the cake. And there you have Daly importantly pushing against that. She's one of a number of speakers that have been out that have been kind of making the market think, you know, maybe this idea of the sharp rate cuts next year are a mistake. It'll be interesting to watch, John, the market react to this. They may feel they're right and the Fed itself is wrong that that they get to a point where they raise rates and they cause a recession and the backside of that requires the fed to to reduce rates there are a lot of people in the market that have that uh, uh confirmation but the fed doesn't want that now because the fed wants to tighten financial conditions now and this belief later on of rate cuts kind of works again with the against what the fed's trying to do right now steve i also asked uh san francisco president daly about what she thinks, is it possible to bring down the number of job openings out there 
without significantly raising the unemployment rate. She says she thinks it is possible, uh, but kind of yes and no. She thinks the unemployment rate will come up a bit. Uh, th there's a bit of a debate out there about whether that's possible, right? Yeah, it's a real, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, 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 a nerd uh, takedown going on right now. You got uh, Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, with Olivia Bonchard, the uh, IMF chief economist, kind of going up against uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell and Fed Governor uh, Waller about this idea. Can you reduce job openings without dramatically increasing the unemployment rate? Powell and Waller think yes, which is kind of their belief as to why we don't have a recession or, let's say, a very painful recession. Because obviously, as one economist put it, if you have a recession without big job losses, it really isn't a recession at all. They point to the fact that as of this morning, we have 10.6 million uh, job openings. And I don't know what it is. Normally, run rate is 5 million uh, uh, job opening. So it's double what it normally could be. So the idea of Powell and Co. is that you can bring down the openings and not increase the unemployment rate. Summers and Blanchard say there is absolutely no historical <laughs> evidence of that, to which the retort retort, John, is, yeah, well, guess what? We've not been in any kind of situation like a pandemic before where we have uh, a lot of people to put back to work well, and a lot of people still missing from the workforce. It also comes down to this question of matching efficiency, right? Can it get easier for people who need work to find just the right job for them. And, you know, on, on the higher end of the income spectrum, it seems like things like remote work might make that easier because, hey, now you don't have to move to the city where that company is headquartered necessarily to get that job. But Daly was arguing that even in the lower end of the wage spectrum, because it's not so hard to switch between a warehouse job, of which there are plenty because of e-commerce players like, uh, like Amazon and Walmart, and a retail job, that maybe matching efficiency can go up there, too. It's a, it's a technology wrinkle, perhaps, in this question. John, you're going to have to be careful. If you start using uh, uh, terms like matching efficiency, you're going to be adopted pretty quickly as a junior <laughs> economics reporter, um, whether you like it or not. But you are absolutely right. This I don't want you to call it, uh, maybe another term is friction. Um, take, for example, all of the truckers and drivers that were hired to deliver packages uh, that were ordered during the pandemic. As that uh, uh, declines, and there is some story out there, by the way, on our dot com about this opening of retail stores, believe it or not, talk about back to the future. There's some surge in the opening of retail stores, which would mean some kind of decline in that. So those drivers would go from say, an unemployed uh, period of time, and then hopefully back into the workforce in places where, for example, in the service industry, you know, you have uh, flights that aren't taking place and, and hotels that aren't open and restaurants that do not uh, have enough workers. So there's this transition period where we get to this matching efficiency. John, you are hired, sir. Well, I'm not an economics reporter, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Steve Leisman, thank you. <laughs> Way to go. Guys, let's get another check on Uber before we go to break. Stocks having its best day since November of 2020, up almost 16% this morning. Plus, coming up, one Wall Street firm says it's time to get out of Snowflake as the S&P has gone green once again, 4120. Don't go away.
Let's get a gut check on Snowflake today. BTIG cuts to neutral from buy, although they say they're still bullish in the long term. Analysts expect growth to slow in a weakening macro environment and are worried about increased volatility over the next year. In the short term, BTIG says they see potential for product revenue growth to slow in the coming quarters. And you see shares up marginally here up to 151, John. Yeah, it dipped at first, I guess. Uh, pre-market, but then pop right back up. As we head to break, check out shares of Global Payments. Oppenheimer calls the stock a top pick this morning. CEO Jeff Sloan joins us next. Don't go away. Let's get to the latest deal in fintech. Global Payments, as you may know by now, announcing it will acquire Evo for $4 billion, sending shares skyrocketing yesterday. A deal to expand Global Payments' target addressable market and boost its position in integrated payments worldwide. Global Payments also had better than expected results for Q2. And joining us this morning is the CEO of Global Payments, Jeff Sloan. Jeff, congratulations on the deal. It's great to have you. Thanks, Carl. It's great to be back with you. Talk to me just about, in general, about the scale this provides you in the wake of this. Well, Carl, really brings two things. The first thing it brings to global payments is more technology. So we've been looking for a B2B accounts receivable software uh, company uh, for probably at least the last six or nine months. Uh, and we think Evo brings best in class receivables technology. Most bills pay today by businesses to other businesses or either in the form of uh, paper checks or in the form of ACH with very little software. These guys have a very substantial presence in B2B accounts receivable software that complements our business. The second thing is new geographies. This brings us directly into Poland. This brings us into Ireland. This makes us much bigger in Mexico. Those are markets that we've really coveted here at Global Payments for some time. And as you say, it gives us more scale uh, in our existing markets like the United States, Canada, and Spain. Is it a play necessarily on any particular type of customer size? It's very similar to the way we're constructed today at Global Payments, Carl. So really small to mid-sized businesses is a core of what we do at Global. That's really always been true on the merchant side, which is uh, two-thirds and soon to be three-quarters of the uh, of the company. Evo was constructed uh, very similarly, clearly in some of these markets like Poland, like Mexico. There are enterprise customers too, but really our bread and butter is a small to mid-sized customer. Jeff, interesting to me that Silver Lake Partners is investing $1.5 billion dollars here in the form of a convertible note as part of this deal. Why have them in this? Well, we couldn't be more excited uh, uh, to partner, John, with Silver Lake Partners, which is the global leader in technology investing. Think about Airbnb, think about Alipay, uh, think about Twitter, uh, et cetera. We think it brings a few things uh, to the table that we didn't have before. The first thing, John, is it brings just uh, uh, fantastic relationships with financial institutions around the world. Those are another core customer customer base of ours, the ability to open doors to FIs, technology companies, software businesses is something that Silver Lake, uh, of course, is the world expert in. I think that's very additive to uh, to what we do. The second thing is it brings a lot of financial firepower to where we are. So while the business itself and the deal is a mix of bank debt, about three quarters, uh, and the convert uh, with Silver Lake, there are plenty of other deals that we'll look at in the uh, in the future of varying sizes uh, and we feel that Silver Lake brings very smart, very high attra- highly attractive capital uh, to what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, given your cash levels, does it also help you to continue doing M&A? I-, I wonder because I think we spend a lot of time talking about fintech that's consumer facing, but probably not enough talking about B2B fintech. Are, are we in consolidation mode in B2B fintech and does this help you there? 
I think the answer is uh, absolutely, uh, John, and what you asked, which is to say that uh, our thesis all along is that B2B is the next area for disintermediation uh, and is ripe for disruption. That's what we intend to do. Uh, Silver Lake has extensive experience um, in those markets. Um, I don't think there's anyone who has a longer-term vision of where technology is heading uh, than SLP, very consistent with our point of view. And to have a partner like that, unique with us, to be able to go look at to disrupt at those additional markets and really focus on new tech rather than legacy tech, I think is a critical part of our thesis. Jeff, the deal, of course, is the story of the day. Maybe next time we can talk a little more currency and macro. Obviously, a lot of lingering questions there uh, throughout the course of the rest of the year, but it's good to have you. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. It's great to see you. Now, if you missed part of the show, don't fret. You can follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. One more thing, and that is Elon Musk and Twitter. The company is probing Musk's social circle with new subpoenas, according to The Washington Post. It's seeking information from a few names that are actually familiar to our audience. Chamath Palihapitiya, David Sachs, Steve Jurvetson, Mark Andreessen, Jason Calacanis, and Joe Lonsdale asking for any communications on how Musk put together the deal and the financing to buy Twitter uh, John, there's a lot about what's happened in the last couple of weeks that we don't have a lot of visibility on, but we can tell there's a lot of uh, uh, stuff under the surface that is going on in court, and we're going to have to wait to get some visibility on it. Yeah, also asking about what happened with Bob Swan, the former Intel CEO, who was at one point working on this deal for Elon Musk, and then suddenly Elon said, Bob Swan not working on this anymore. Someone else is, and then Twitter couldn't get in touch with the someone else. This is shaping up to be perhaps um, quite a star-studded list of in, uh, people involved in, in this. Uh, and we already knew we were going to be paying close attention, but um, I'm sure that uh, Chamath and, and Jason are going to love getting those subpoenas. Uh, yes, I, I imagine we'll hear from them shortly. It'd be my guess. Uh, as for earnings season, John, as you know, it continues tonight. EA, Airbnb, AMD, PayPal, all after the close. Last week, of course, AMD passed Intel in total market cap after Intel stock plunged on those disappointing results. Uh, John, the consensus view is that uh, AMD is essentially eating their lunch, and we'll see if tonight's results ratify that. Yeah, lunch, clearly. Now let's see if we're getting into the appetizers for dinner <laughs> and perhaps the amuse-bouche as well. And, uh, you know, data center is going to be one area where we know that Intel has been relatively weak. Uh, let's see how that's shaping up for AMD. And also, meanwhile, they've been gaining some share in consumer, but, but gaming seems to have been weakening a bit. So how will AMD perform there? That's important as well. But, of course, PayPal, we were just talking about fintech. Carl, that's a big name there, so we'll see how they perform. Yeah, Starbucks, of course, uh, big exposure to China, which, of course, is a major story today as uh, the speaker landed in Taiwan, which, by the way, I would point out her landing uh, essentially marked the top of the session. S&P did go green and then has recently uh, regained some of the or cut those losses. We're currently about flat at 41.17. Let's get to the judge in the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.